Good morning. It's a delight to be here with you and share God's Word. And as Mike said, we're going to be continuing our ninth sermon in this series on Love the Other. And our text for today is pretty simple, but I think it's pretty powerful text. It's love keeps no records of wrongs. And I'm, for the sake of time, I'm just going to jump right into the text. And I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 7, and I'm using the NIV version. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that could move mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I don't know about you, but when I read that description of agape love, I'm so happy to know that that's the kind of love that God has toward you and I. It's supernatural, it's pure, it's powerful, it's the best. And when we see how pure and perfect this agape love is, we probably can't help but notice that our own love falls far short of that description. And so our prayer throughout the sermon series is that God will speak to our hearts through the preaching of this text, and that we will grow in our ability to love others with God's love. Now, last week we learned that love is not irritable. It's not easily angered or provoked. It does not overreact to small annoyances. Instead, it endures. It tolerates inconveniences. It doesn't get all worked up when you ask for no cheese in a sandwich, but it comes with cheese anyway. Or the person behind us is singing way off key, and we can't help but be distracted by it. Agape love absorbs these things with grace and patience, because love is not easily irritated. But how do we respond with love when we experience things far worse than a pile of dirty clothes left on the floor? Or the driver that sits there a few extra seconds after the light has turned green, prompting well, at least me to go, move, move, as if my life depended on it. Things like that can be irritating. But we understand that these are momentary annoyances. We don't lose sleep over them. We just have a, a reaction and we go on with our day. What about the deeper hurts that we experience in life from time to time? The ones that you do lose sleep over. Not the minor irritations that bother us for a minute or fade, but emotional injuries that burden us and embed their way into our soul and that will not pass, that will not fade with the passing of time. How do we walk in agape love toward those who have wronged us? who have wounded us, who physically, emotionally, verbally, financially, or spiritually abused us. What do we do with those experiences? What does love have to say about that? Well, the answer is our text for today, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. I'm, I'm going to read from quite a few versions. 
The English Standard Version says, love is not resentful. And the NIV, love keeps no record of wrongs. And the ERV says, love does not remember the wrongs done against it. The Phillips Version says, love does not keep an account of evil. The NASB, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. The New Century Version, love does not count up the wrongs that have been done. Eugene Peterson's The Message, love doesn't keep score of the sins of others. In the New American Bible, love does not brood over an injury. Now all these translations attempt to convey the meaning of the Greek phrase in the original text, which is legizomai gu kakaos. That main verb is legizomai, and that was a very common accounting term. It simply means to take inventory, to count, to calculate, to number something, to keep a record, but it describes the actions of a bookkeeper who would keep a ledger. Now, I'm not a professional bookkeeper, but I do have some experience in keeping records. When I was 21 years old, I started my own landscape maintenance business called Maranatha Maintenance. I quickly learned how important it was for me to keep track of the exact time that I showed up at a client's house and the time that I left, the number of employees that were on site at that time, the amount of mulch we supplied, the number of shrubs we planted, basically a very detailed description of the work that we did. For many years, I plowed snow for commercial properties. I'd write down to the minute the time that I showed up on the job and the inches to the fraction of how much snow I plowed. My goal was to have very accurate, detailed records of what was done so that I could calculate what was owed to me. That's what legizomai means, to, to make an account, to keep a record. Now, keeping records is good for managing a business, but it's bad for maintaining relationships. Warren Wearsby said he once knew a man who actually kept a written list of the rotten things that people had done to him. He said that man was one of the most miserable people that he had ever known. Many people keep a list of wrongs they have suffered. They never really get over what happened to them. They dwell on it. They live in it. They ferment in it. And as a result, they let the past shape their present and poison their future. How many of us keep track of the faults and failures of family members or friends or foes? How many of us have an internal ledger? We do keep score of someone that's hurt us, who's wounded us. You need to know that that's the wrong way to handle the wrongs that were done because love keeps no record of wrongs. And what do we mean by that word wrongs anyway? What constitutes a wrong from a, a simple irritation or annoyance? That Greek word, as I mentioned, is because. 40 times in the New Testament, that same word was translated evil. So cause really refers to something beyond a slight mistake. It's something evil, something that injured us, something that was destructive in our life. It was harmful. I think the Apostle Paul is recognizing that some of the stuff that happens to us, it is, it's just evil. He's not minimizing the wrong as if it doesn't matter. But he is telling us that we need to stop carrying it around with us. We don't want to keep dwelling on it. If you've been hurt, 
and you find it hard to let go if weeks and months and years have gone by and you still carry that pain inside you my guess is that you also struggle with resentment and bitterness and depression and anger and even hatred once those things find a home in your heart they take root and spread like a bad weed invading your lawn they slowly and steadily creep into the crevices of your soul and over time your joy will dry up and your strength will fade and your inner peace will shrink while the inner pain grows i know that to be true because that has been my experience i have felt that way i have struggled with forgiving people that hurt me deeply we can know that we're holding a grudge when we want people to hurt the way they hurt us we don't pray sweet mercy for them we pray sweet revenge that is not the way of love the way of love is forgiveness it's been said that when you forgive you in no way change the past but you sure do change the future forgiveness is the only way to stop carrying the pain of the past into your present and into your future when we make it when we forgive, we make a decision to let go of the record of wrongs that were done. We make a choice to not remind ourselves of the injury, not dwell on the injustice of it, open ourselves to God's abundant grace, and be willing to extend that same abundant grace to others. You will know you are on the path of forgiveness when you can think about that person that hurt you, and you find that you now have the capacity to honestly wish them well. You're able to pray that they will come to experience more of God's love and peace in their life, just as you would desire for your own life. I also think it's possible that, that there's a lot of wrong ideas out there, out there about what forgiveness is, and I want to share six things with you that forgiveness is not. First, forgiveness is not forgetting. Now, we've all heard that phrase, you know, you need to forgive and forget. But when we forgive, we do not somehow lose the mental capacity to remember things. When we forgive, we lose the bitter sting of the memory. We lose that desire for revenge. And we come to a place where we want them to experience God, not to experience pain. Forgiveness is not about developing a case of amnesia. It's about releasing the offender into God's care anytime that it pops into your mind. So forgiveness is not forgetting and forgiveness is not a feeling. Now if you wait until you feel like forgiving someone who's hurt you, you could end up waiting a lifetime. You may never feel like it. Lewis Smedes said, forgiveness is love's toughest work. Forgiving seems almost unnatural. Our sense of fairness tells us people should pay for the wrong they do. Forgiveness is God's invention for coming to terms with the world in which people are unfair and they do hurt each other deeply. God began by forgiving us, and he invites us all to forgive one another. Forgiveness is not a fuzzy feeling we wait to experience before we do it. It is a faithful discipleship decision. It's a choice we make. It may feel unnatural, but we do it because of what Christ has done for us. Third thing is that forgiveness is not conditional. What do I mean by that? What conditions do you think need to be met before you need to forgive someone? What if they never ask you to, 
What if they never apologize or they haven't repented and they haven't even expressed remorse or regret? Are you free to not forgive because those conditions haven't been met? No, you're not. You can still forgive someone without any of those conditions. Forgiveness does not require an apology or a show of remorse by the one who offended. It's easier to forgive when they do that, but it's not a required condition. And I say that because the Roman soldiers who hammered spikes into Jesus' hands and feet and were very busy gambling to see who would get his garments while he was in agony on the cross, they did not apologize or show the slightest remorse for their horrific action. And yet Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus' heart was to forgive them while they were in the very act of crucifying him. So we see that forgiveness does not require an offending party say sorry for what they've done. We can forgive people who don't even seem to care how much they hurt us. We can forgive people without their consent. You can even forgive someone who has passed away because the power to forgive lies within us, not within them. So forgiveness is not forgetting, it's not a feeling, it doesn't have conditions, and forgiveness is not condoning the offense. Forgiveness does not mean that we gloss over it, we, we minimize it, we act like, you know, it really wasn't that big a deal. No, we call it what it is. The Bible says, woe to those who call evil good. And so we can call evil exactly what it is, evil. We can be realistic about what we are forgiving. Forgiving someone does not weaken the wrongness of what they did to you or make you weaker because you forgave them. Forgiveness actually requires strength, the power of, the, of agape love. Remember at the crucifixion, there are soldiers and religious leaders and from the outside it looks like they're the ones with power. But the most powerful person there was the one forgiving his executioners. And that same power to forgive is available to us through Christ as crucified and we on board. So forgiveness does not condone or diminish the offense. Number five is forgiveness is not the same as trust. You can forgive a person who has showed no evidence of change, but I wouldn't trust a person to show no evidence of change. Once that trust is lost in a relationship, it's going to need to be rebuilt. And that takes time. That requires a track record of better behavior to reestablish trust. So trust is conditional, but forgiveness is not. And finally, number six, forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. You can fully forgive someone and not be fully reconciled. Forgiveness, remember, requires nothing of the offender. They may not even know or care that you forgave them. But to be fully reconciled to someone who wronged you requires first that you forgive them, and second, they need to repent and change. So in that way, just like trust, reconciliation is conditional because it takes cooperation. Perhaps they have no interest in that at all. Perhaps the offense is so grievous that while it is possible with God's help for you to forgive them, it really is not possible for you to be reconciled with that person. 
Romans 12, 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And the implication is, there may be times when it's not possible as far as it depends on you. So you can forgive without a full reconciliation. So just a quick wrap up, wrap up. Forgiveness is not forgetting. It's not a feeling. It's not conditional. It's not condoning wrong. It's not the same as trust does not require reconciliation in each and every circumstance. Now having looked at a few things of what forgiveness is not, let's touch on what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is releasing a debt, dismissing the charges, letting go of our right to be paid back. Forgiveness is all about offering grace, mercy, and compassion to someone who does not deserve it, someone who could never earn it. That's what makes it hard. C.S. Lewis aptly noted, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. Something about forgiving others that we struggle with seems unfair to expect me to give mercy to someone that gave me misery, for me to pardon someone that I prefer to punish. Why should I forgive the unforgivable? And so we look for loopholes, for good reasons to justify our resistance to forgive them. Surely there must be some limits to who we forgive or how many times we forgive the same person who does the same thing. Now in Matthew 18, 21, the apostle Peter, he was wondering about the limits of forgiveness. He really wanted to know when is enough enough? When is it okay to stop forgiving? Remember how Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Now you should know that Peter was being very generous because the rabbinic teaching of that day taught that forgiving someone three times, that's the limit. And here, Peter doubled it, and then he adds one more, just for good measure. Probably thought Jesus would be pretty impressed with his generous offer to forgive up to seven times. But we know that Jesus was not impressed, and he took the occasion to give a quite powerful teaching on forgiveness. In verse 22, he said, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. And some translations say 70 times seven. Well, so much for Peter's idea that forgiveness had a reasonable limit to it. Jesus does not really mean 77, as if on the 78th time you could stop, or 490. He's saying you shouldn't even be counting because you're hoping to reach that forgiveness limit so that you no longer have to do it. Jesus is telling us to forgive as many times as the offense happens. And I think Jesus knows the way we think, and he knows that that kind of unlimited forgiveness just seems excessive. It just seems almost wrong to forgive that much. If we just keep forgiving people who wrong us, I mean, where does that end? Is there not a reasonable stop to this? How does this no-limit policy on forgiving feel if you were the one who was abused or assaulted or betrayed or cheated or lied about? You were the one that wasn't promoted when you deserved it. You were bullied. Somebody scammed you. You were laid off, rejected, or 
I like mistreated? Am I supposed to understand that when people treat me wrong, I'm just going to forgive and forgive and forgive, and then I'm going to forgive some more? Something seems wrong with that picture. When is it time that they pay? I think Peter's probably processing this idea of forgiving someone 77 times. Probably thinking that is outrageous from his perspective. And Jesus launches right into a story about what resistance to forgive looks like from God's perspective. And that's the story I want us to look at. It's in Matthew 18, 23 to 35. And verse 23 says, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, in that day, the king's response to the servant's inability to pay, that was common practice. No one listening to that story would think that that king was being brutal. It wasn't shocking or severe. Everyone knew that the inability to pay debt, it could leave you in prison. And you and your family and everything you have could be sold just to pay for it. That seemed to me it would add up to some pretty strong motivation for people to limit their debt, pay up the best you can. Now, apparently this servant really liked to borrow because he borrowed a lot, but he did not like the consequences when he could not pay it all back. He was in a terrible mind. He had no way out, no way to save himself. He was about to lose everything. And then we see verse 26. So the servant fell on his knees imploring the king, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. That is a shocking development. The servant, he asked the king for more time to pay back the outrageous debt, but instead of just extending the terms, the king was moved with compassion, and he decided to give him a full pardon. In one instant, the king deleted that servant's entire debt. Now that's unbelievable. He owed so much, and now he doesn't owe a penny. The king's willingness to absorb that debt is absolutely amazing. As soon as that king forgave him, his status changed from someone hopelessly in debt, on their way to a life of misery, to a servant who had a zero balance account. He was now in good standing with the king. Isn't it true that he was blessed beyond measure by the king's compassion and mercy? I want to talk a little bit about the value of that debt that was canceled. I mean, Jesus, he picked numbers. He could have just said, eh, this guy owed him a lot of money. But he told us it was 10,000 talents. Now remember, this story is meant to give us a new perspective on what forgiveness looks like from God's viewpoint. So I think it's important for us to understand the value of a talent. I'm going to offer you a lot of numbers to consider, and I hope you can track it with me. So one talent was worth 6,000 denarii. One denarii is the wage for one day of work. So one talent equals the wages of 6,000 days. Back then they worked six days a week. So with festivals and Sabbaths, we can say that probably they worked 300 days in a year. 
That means that 6,000 days of labor equals 20 years of work. Can you imagine? 20 years of work equals one talent. It would take 200 years for the servant to pay back 10 talents, but he owed 10,000 talents. He asked for more time, it would have taken 200,000 years. Now you understand the scope of the debt that the Timothy forgave. It was an enormous amount, and he just wiped it all away. I was also curious what all that would be worth in today's currency, so I just did some figuring with that $17 an hour, 6,000 days, $816,000. That's one talent, 816. Remember that the king didn't forgive him for 10 talents or 100, but 10,000 talents, that's $8,160,000,000. Imagine the joy you would have if your car loan, your student loan, your mortgage, your credit card balance, anything that you owed on anything, all of it was just instantly forgiven. Not a penny was owed anymore. How relieved would you be? How awesome would that be? This servant just had 200,000 years of wages forgiven him. Something that was absolutely impossible for him to ever get out of. It's just hard to comprehend, comprehend the grace that he had received. Now, I think if Jesus stopped the story right there, that would be a nice, warm, fuzzy story with one of those, hey, and everyone would happily ever after endings. But it doesn't end there. Jesus had more to say about forgiveness. And so we're going to look at verse 28 and following. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Wow, what a dark turn in that happy story. This guy, who just had $8 billion worth of debt forgiven, who was spared from that punishment that he deserved, he has refused to forgive someone who owed him hundred denarii. That's 100 days of wages. Today, at $17 an hour, that would be $13,600. It's the size of a sum, but you actually could pay it back. Notice that neither servant had the means to pay the debt. They both fell to their knees. They both pleaded, have patience with me and I will pay you. But we don't see the same response. We see one servant who had been forgiven $8 billion, refused to forgive a debt of 13-6 from a fellow servant. I think Jesus purposely made this such a stark contrast to illustrate for us the injustice of a servant with a 10,000 10, talent debt forgiving a 100 denarii debt. It's meant to provoke in you that same sense of justice and fairness that made us think that forgiving someone 77 times was not fair. But now we can see the inequity of a person who receives great mercy and then refusing to show that same mercy to others. We begin to see what it looks like from God's perspective. 
And the story continues in verse 31. It says, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. In this last verse, it's, it's really almost hard to hear. Jesus said, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. The fellow servants in the king are so upset that the servant, forgiven so richly, forgave others so poorly. This injustice, this inequity, it doesn't set, sit well with the king. And he can't help but ask the servant a powerful question. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Of course, he should have offered his fellow servant mercy, but we know he did not. Perhaps, perhaps we are a little bit like that servant. Could it be that we ask God to forgive us our sins? And I mean all of them, a lifetime of them. Every secret thought, every unchristlike action, everything about us that's not pure, not holy, don't we ask God to wipe that clean? We don't want him to hold even one sin against us. We need him to forgive it all. And yet, we find it in our heart to keep a record of wrongs against those who wounded us. If you're holding a grudge against someone today, if you're here today, and as I said, this would have described me at one point in my life, if you struggle to forgive an evil done against you, I have no doubt that you haven't truly been completely hurt. Perhaps you live with the bitter effects of someone else's sinful choices, and you have found it very hard to get over. Truth is, it still hurts today. But if you are carrying that pain with you, if that person's name or face just stirs resentment and anger, you're not free from that hurt. It has a hold on you because you have a hold on it. The story is told of a boy sitting on a park bench in obvious pain and discomfort. And when asked what's causing his pain, he says, I'm sitting on a bumblebee. Then why don't you get up, he's asked. And he says, well, I figure I'm hurting him more than he's hurting me. Are you sitting on the pain of a wrong done to you in the past? Is this still stinging you? Do you think that somehow by not forgiving someone who hurt you, that you're hurting them? You're only hurting yourself. It's been said that unforgiveness is like drinking poison and hoping that someone else dies. If we hold on to an offense, anger, resentment, and bitterness will have a hold on us. Lewis Smedes in his book said to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that that prisoner is you. You may not feel much like forgiving, but you can forgive as an act of faith. Philip Yancey wrote, at last I understood that in the final analysis forgiveness is an act of faith. 
by forgiving another, I'm trusting that God is a better justice maker than I am. By forgiving, I release my right to get even, and I leave all issues of fairness for God to work out. I leave in God's hands the scale that most must balance both justice and mercy. I want to encourage you, if this speaks to you at all, to take a step of faith today, to resolve in your heart to forgive whoever it was that did you wrong. You need to verbalize it, to say it, to pray it, and start walk, walking on the path of letting it go, rather than to continue to sit on it. Agape love keeps no records of wrongs. We can't practice agape love without the Holy Spirit in us. But when we do align our will with God's will, then the Holy Spirit will enable us to walk in newness of life. Then we can follow Ephesians 4.32, which says, Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive one another just as God forgave you in Christ. Church, we are a community of servants who have had an $8 billion debt forgiven by our King. And because he has graciously forgiven us in Christ, we can forgive one another in the same way. Let us pray. Oh God, we recognize that if we had to stand before you on our merits, if we had to give an account for every wrong that we had ever done in our life, we would be bankrupt. We would be like that servant. We'd have no way to help ourselves we would face eternal misery, separated from you. But we don't stand alone. We stand with Christ our Savior who died for us, whose blood wiped clean that record of sins that would testify against us. And we stand amazed at your willingness to forgive us entirely. Father, you don't, even, you don't only cancel our debt, but you take it a step farther, you actually deposit the righteousness of Christ into our account. So that when you look at us, you don't see a bankrupt sinner. You see the righteousness of Jesus. Oh, how we thank you for your goodness. We'd be lost without it. Father, would you work your love into us and work it through us? May we never forget the scope of what you've done for us. And may that cause us to be quick to forgive any who sin against us, knowing that love keeps no record of wrongs. Lord Jesus, we need you to help us love others in the same way that you have loved us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.